Welcome to the show. My name is James Nielsen Watt, and in this show, we interview interesting, inspiring, and successful people so you can learn the secrets to success and can play the game of life, business, health, and happiness better. And the philosophy we take here is if I'm leveling up my game, you get to level up yours as well. So get ready to listen to some inspiring people who have figured out how to have success in all areas of life, health, happiness, wealth, business. We're gonna be interviewing them in this show so that you can learn the secrets to success that they share with practical advice that you can take and use today. So if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, please leave us a review, and please share it with your friends because if I can help you and you can help others, then we can help more people together and we can all level up our game together. My guest today is Jackson Millen, the wealth mentor who's spent the last 14 years helping service businesses understand the language of money and manufacture financial freedom for themselves and their families. He has successfully helped over 1,000 clients build in excess of $1.5 billion in combined wealth and has scaled multiple seven-figure businesses. He is a master of helping business owners make money work for them and turn their business profit into personal wealth. Welcome to the show, Jackson. Super excited to have you on. Thanks for having me, mate. I'm looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good one. I feel like there's going to be a lot of gold nuggets here that, that everyone's going to get a ton of value on. I know that I am. And you know, selfishly, since it's my show, I get to do that. But uh, I'm hoping that the listeners do as well. So can you give us some context on you, my friend? Like, Give us some background. How do you get to where you are and what do you do and all that kind of good stuff? Yes, mate. So I'm Jackson Milan. I'm also known as the Wealth Mentor. I've been involved in the the wealth space for business owners for over 15 years now. And uh, I grew up with my parents being blue-collar business owners, incredibly hard workers, uh, were always working, uh, had very, very good work ethics, and always said to me as a kid, hey, Jackson, if you want to be successful in life, you've got to work hard for it. And um, work hard they did. Um, they tirelessly worked 16 hour days, seven days a week for as long as I could remember. But they never had much to show for it. Um, we went through periods of maybe they owned their home for a little bit, and then we went back to renting. And um, they always tried to do their best to give me great opportunities. But it always came with that little bit of a kind of a, a gritting of the teeth uh, to say, hey, Jackson, I want to give you that thing, but I've got to sacrifice myself in order to, to compromise to get you those outcomes. And it always filled me with a bit of guilt because I never wanted to ask for things to have my parents be at that crossroads where they needed to make a decision of whether uh, they give me what I wanted and go without themselves. So I decided at 19, I was going to start becoming a financial advisor. uh, And I got a traineeship in a place called the Financial Advice Center. And uh, James, this was the closest scene to something out of the Wolf of Wall Street as you could possibly imagine. Um, It was a bullpen of hundreds of reps on the phone. Uh, It was like this thick, toxic sales culture that you could almost smell in the air. And I hated it. Uh, All I could see was them trying to help two kinds of people. They either wanted to make rich people richer uh, or they wanted to sell commission-based products to people like my parents who really didn't need them. And it really was disheartening for me because it wasn't what I thought the industry was going to be. And before I nearly hung up my hat and threw the towel in, I said, hey, if I'm going to do this the way that I wanted to do it, how would I do it differently? So I very quickly binned the term financial advisor and I started calling myself a wealth coach. And I started teaching people like my parents the language of money, teaching them the fundamentals, teaching them how to get clear on their goals and how to create a financial strategy that give them confidence and peace of mind. And just doing the simple stuff that 
We never taught at school. And uh, over the last 15 years, I've been able to help my clients build over $1.5 billion in combined wealth uh, and scale up a, a number of multi-seven-figure businesses myself. So it's been, a, it's been quite a journey. Why do you think so many of us come from backgrounds where we just there's just no understanding about money? Like, Why is there just this collective misunderstanding around money, how it works, what it is? Like, When you start getting into it, you really realize that people don't know what money is or what it's for or how it works. It's really interesting, mate. And I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this. And I think the constant around the world, it doesn't matter where you are, if you're in Australia, New Zealand, the US, there is no financial literacy syllabus. It doesn't exist. And there are a handful of lessons which are normally like consumer debt related. There's no real education around investing and how to buy your first home and how to deal with taxes and all of these things. So most of us go through life with a subjective firsthand school of hard knocks understanding of money. And if we're lucky enough, we have parents who've worked it out for themselves, potentially because of the parents before them, our grandparents have worked it out for themselves. And there's been a track history of financial success or on the flip side, and in my case, and for the vast majority of people, a track history of financial battle and survival. And that perpetuates itself. It gets passed from generation to generation. And it's only people like us who are able to say, hey, I need to escape this matrix. I need to break this pattern. And we make mistakes of our own, but we then create a catalyst for change. And then we find ourselves out of that situation. So the problem is we need to get out of this subjective knee-jerk generation to generation pattern and start taking ownership to learn this stuff for ourselves. What I find uh, tricky that was in, in, from my opinion, my experience, but also working with people has been helping them to shift their view about money. Like oh, yeah. there's this, there's this delusion where, well, if, if he has, it's, it's because he's taken and there is only a finite amount of money in it. And, you know, I've read the books and, and listened to the people and they say things like, well, because if, if, you, if you talk about things like, you know, money grows on trees, it implies it's finite and it, it, this is just a shared belief. But like, I find that tricky to help people to shift it to an abundance mindset that actually there's plenty and you don't have to take, you can create. I feel like that's, well, I'd love to know your opinion, but like, it feels like that's the big thing. Like once you get past that, suddenly you, you've looked through the curtain and you go, oh shit. Actually, it's actually very straightforward uh, to start making money. 100%, mate, particularly in the health space, right? Like we work with a lot of, of health and wellness professionals, allied health, um, and there's so much money baggage. And there's these, these underlying principles that form part of our operating system that become truth. They become gospel. And like money is not a zero-sum game. Like for you to win, somebody else doesn't have to lose. Um, there is enough money to go around for many people to amass huge amounts of wealth and to do so in a way that's congruent to their values and to be able to benefit society. And the big problem here is that because many of our parents who have been battlers or we've observed people battling, or maybe we've battled ourselves, that we become jaded in that experience. Like, why me? Why do I have to endure this pain? Why do I see all of these other people achieving all these amazing things? And why can't I have a slice of that? And as a result, we put all these negative connotations and this negative soul into money where money is soulless. It's a tool. It's like a hammer, a screwdriver. It's a scalpel. And it is how you choose to use that tool is how it is perceived and whether it is good or bad. It's innate in its own existence. It's just a vehicle. 
So what's really important in an exercise we take our clients through, James, is we take them through their money memories. Because it was famously said by Winston Churchill that those who fail to learn from history are bound to repeat it. And what is really interesting is that so many people find themselves in this vicious cycle of hitting these invisible money ceilings that they never seem to be able to break through. And what's really interesting is one of my first mindset coaches taught me, he said, Jackson, the situations that we learn to survive, our survival ultimately depends upon. It's because we've, our, our brains are efficient, and I'm sure health professionals can understand this. We learn this in, say, chemistry and biology. As human beings, our body is trying to create this, this, this system of homeostasis, right? It wants balance. It wants everything to equal out. And the same thing happens with our experience in the, as we're navigating through life. And this has been summarized in a really great metaphor. It was a, a study that we, we saw with fleas, right? So they got these fleas. And they put them in this jar, right? And fleas naturally could jump above the lid of the jar. But for a generation, they put the lid on this jar. And these fleas obviously developed the habit of only being able to jump as high as where the lid was because there was a physical constraint. They then took off the lid. And those fleas no longer jumped any higher than where the lid once was. And the next, the next generation of fleas also didn't jump as high as where the lid was. So this is a great example of conditioning. And if we can remove that invisible ceiling that many of us have around money, we can start jumping much higher than those self-limiting beliefs and constraints. Sounds a little bit woo-woo, but it, it has a massive and profound impact, mate. Another study that that I'd read about was when they had chimpanzees in a ladder and, and bananas. You might have heard that one, right? Where they put the bananas above the ladder and then they would climb up and get them and then they'd spray them with a hose and uh, shortcut the story. They would stop doing it and then they brought in monkeys who had never seen this before. They would go and climb up it and the other monkeys would beat the crap out of them and say, we don't do that. And then they got rid of the original monkeys who actually saw it. So now there are no monkeys who have actually been sprayed with water and they continued the culture on. And I think that we do that with, you know, our parents do that to us, our friends do that to us, we do it to our kids. And so to break that requires you to sort of look up a little bit and pay attention, sniff around, and then start finding others who can support that because, and and you do sales as well, my friend, like when, when I'm selling somebody into something that I know is going to be beneficial for them, because I can see like I'm further way further down the track uh they go back and they talk to people who are unsupportive of the idea not because it's like a malicious intent but there's like a protection thing we want to protect our loved ones but ironically we can end up harming them more by having good intentions without education um but that's a tough one because we just want to help and sometimes the best thing to do is to, to not say anything to let this person figure that thing out um so let's let's get into some practical stuff here because I feel like like I can go on for hours about this stuff, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think that it's impactful, but I want to get to, to some juice. So I've heard the, the term before. Now, I'm going to preface this. I own my home and I own a couple of investment properties, but I've heard the concept, I think Grant Cardone popularized it a lot, which is, um, you know, rent where you want to live and then buy where you can rent. What's your opinion around that? If I've got some cash, I don't own a home, what should I be doing? Should I be thinking about getting an investment property or should I, and, and then renting where I want to live or should I be thinking about getting a home? Yeah, this is where Grant and I differ because I don't believe in his opinion of this. I'm a big believer that financial freedom means two things. True financial freedom means that you own your home and it's fully paid off and you have enough passive income where you've got the freedom to choose what you do with your time. And the reason why that's important is because if you are constantly in the vicious cycle of renting, that is going to be a fixed dead expense 
that is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Whereas when we can own the physical asset that is your home, around the world, it is a capital gains tax exempt asset. So we can always sell it, downsize and get the proceeds or the capital gains that we get from that tax free. Once it is fully paid off, it is going to no longer be an ongoing expense, meaning that we either can reduce the amount of passive income that we need to be able to maintain our lifestyle, or we can commit those those now freed up cash flow in order to do other things, better lifestyle, more travel, more hobbies, that kind of stuff. So I think it's a staple from a quantitative standpoint. And when we crunch the numbers on it, assuming that we're buying a good asset, and once again, I don't believe a beachfront mansion that's a multi-million dollar asset is, is a good asset. Um, and in that case, I would probably advocate renting it. But for the vast majority of us, hey, sure, we might spend a million, two million, potentially three million around about there on our dream home. And that's perfect. Let's focus on getting that paid off. The next part to this is that, sure, if we don't leverage that equity, it is once again a dead asset. So the great thing about this is that we use that equity that we're creating in our home and we leverage against that to allow us to then accumulate a, a multi-property investment portfolio. And that's where we start using the equity that we've created in a very safe asset that gives us peace of mind and certainty to now start snowballing our wealth for the future. Now, another example here, James. If you're not in a position to be able to buy your home yet, let's say it's an aspirational home, you're not quite there for sure. Um, Let's use investment properties as stepping stones to get to that, but that should always be one of the North Stars that we're chasing. Sounds like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, the the caveat to to your, to your statement is if you're buying a home in an area that doesn't historically appreciate particularly well, then it wouldn't make as much sense because now you're buying a depreciating asset, you've got to repair it and fix it, et cetera. But if you're buying exactly. something that is sitting well, because I, I guess I guess the, the, the question I, I ask is why your opinion differs from grants. Is it purely from a lifestyle perspective or is it a difference in opinion on, on wealth creation in that regard? I'll tell you a couple of reasons for that, mate. The the thing, my biggest bugbear with a lot of financial gurus is that they purely talk about the quantitative numbers and figures, and that is not real life. So with our private clients, we actually take them through an exercise that we call the 20-year roadmap. And this is the next biggest mistake that people make when it comes to creating wealth is because they're focusing on the money itself. That is the vehicle. In order for us to work out the appropriate vehicle, we need to define the destinations. So in this 20-year roadmap exercise, we firstly segment the difference between lifestyle goals and financial goals, because there are two parts of the equation that need to be considered and may have different weightings or bearings in how you choose to approach a decision. So the lifestyle goals are primarily qualitative, but what makes you feel good, what improves your quality of life, is what allows you to, to have an amazing existence. And it may not make financial sense, and that's perfectly fine as long as we understand that. And then financial goals are purely quantitative. It's about the dollars and cents. It's about what's going to get us the best possible outcome. Now, from my perspective, James, I like to have my cake and eat it too. So by doing this exercise, by mapping out all of our lifestyle and financial goals over 1, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we can then reverse engineer them all backwards. And for a business owner, I can set an income target that allows them to do everything they want. Now, I'm going to give you a real-life example. Last year, we spent a year traveling around Australia in a four-wheel drive. And it was an amazing lifestyle. But from a financial standpoint, our cost of living was really cheap. So we magnified our surplus substantially compared to us living in Sydney. So 
it was a, as a it was amazing. It was a win win because we had this great lifestyle, rich of experience, and we magnified our surplus. Now our lifestyle goal was to buy an acreage, and we've now bought a seventy acre farm. And we knew that it was going to be a sunk cost, but it was purely a lifestyle choice. Now, we've just been lucky enough that our property has actually appreciated by 20% since we've owned it, um, but that is just cream on top. It was a nice to have. It wasn't our primary objective. And when I was crunching the numbers on that, I said, okay, I've got this sunk cost of about a million dollars. I need to make, make sure on my financial side that I am investing appropriately to compensate for that sunk cost that makes me feel good. Hope that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. It's it's like not just looking at the best strategy to make the money that you now collect and you go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm old, but I've got a ton of money and I can't take it with me. You're looking 100%. at the life that you want. So so maybe buying that rental property makes the the vehicle sense financially, but it's not setting up in the way that you, yeah, exactly. That makes, that makes a lot of sense because I think people, they don't think about that. It's either I must own a home and I'm like, yeah, you know, is that really the best strategy? I got to get yeah. a home. Uh, or I got to make money and then they forget the other stuff. Would you say it's a good idea to look for properties that you can, especially if you're just getting into it, something that you can add value and grow with you to speed you up? Or are you, I suppose it depends on the goals, right? But um, for example, I've got friends who are, you know, wanting to buy a house and they're immediately thinking about going and buying a, a nice new build somewhere in a new uh, suburb somewhere. And I'm looking at the situation thinking you could generate more money if you were to buy something in an area that's gentrifying that you can then add value to and bring to standard and then move somewhere. How would you help someone in that situation? Yeah, it's a really good point. This is where many business owners make big mistakes. So there is a big difference between between being a business owner who is a wealth accumulator and being a professional investor. And this is the differential between an active income and passive income. So as a business owner, your highest purpose is to grow and scale your business profits because you have an active interest in it. You have much more control over it than, say, a property investment, a share market portfolio, or even punting on crypto, right? So where many business owners get this wrong is because they are entrepreneurial at spirit. They have been able to manufacture a great business, whether it be multi-six figures, seven figures, eight figures, whatever. And then they have this inflated ego that they believe that they're now the Midas touch, that they can go and do that in anything, in the property, they can do that with the share market, they can do that with crypto, and they're going to be able to replicate their results. And there is nothing that depletes and destroys wealth as fast as that mentality. So the, the best way to do this is that you are an entrepreneur above all else. Your highest and truest value is growing and scaling your business and trying to buy back your time so you can live an amazing lifestyle. Your wealth should be boring. Super boring. It should be passive. So my philosophy is that I buy as much good quality blue chip property as I possibly can. And that's defined by five key fundamentals. I want to buy property in areas that has high net migration. More people are moving to an area than are moving away. Because fundamentally, property is about supply and demand. If there is more demand than there is supply, property prices will go up. And if the opposite is true, they won't. They'll probably fall. Two, I want diverse employment. I don't want to have any reliance on a particular employment sector that could impact the future demand for that particular area because people will always live somewhere for as long as they can continue to produce an income. 
Three, I want to see infrastructure spending, both public and private. I want to see the improvement of livability and lifestyle conditions in that particular area. Because people go somewhere for the jobs, but they stay there for the lifestyle. Fourth thing, I want to have an understanding of the likelihood of future supply. So I want to understand zoning restrictions. I want to understand whether there's greenfill, undeveloped land in proximity. I want to get an understanding of the potential for developers to come in and build skyrise complexes or apartments to flood the market or come in and start doing house and land allotments as far as the eye can see, which is going to mess with the supply and demand characteristics. And lastly, I want to understand affordability. That's not what you and I can afford. It's not what the listeners can afford. It's what the average demographics of the particular area that you're looking at can afford. Because property prices will go up as long as the supply uh, is less than the demand, but that is capped out at affordability because people can only spend what they can afford or what the banks are prepared, prepared to lend them. So if we can understand those five key fundamentals, we can predictably acquire good quality blue chip property that we know is going to do well over the long term. And we don't need to worry about adding value. Your point, in every single example that I've seen, and unless they've been a professional tradesperson, trying to renovate for profit and manufacture value with the only caveat to that is doing granny flats or dual occupancy subdivisions or these kinds of strategies, they have ended up overcapitalizing we're only getting the appreciation that happened in the macro market if they would have done nothing anyway. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. 100%. I think that uh, a lot of people will buy a property and think, I've just, I'll do some paint and I'll, and I'll put it in a bathroom and it'll be worth more without actually looking at, am I bringing it up to standard? How did I purchase the property, et cetera, et cetera? Because there's, and, and we see that in, in hot markets, someone will buy a house and then they will just do a lick of paint and, and, you know, and uh, water blast the fence and sell it for more because uh, people are, are missing the gems. They're missing the diamond ring that just needs to be you know, spit polished. Whereas everyone else is trying to buy a diamond ring and put more gold on it. And it's like that no one's paying much more for that, buddy. Like no one really exactly really wants that. Um, I'd love to know your opinion around investors and the property market and prices and things. You hear it on the media all the time that uh, the cause is almost exclusively these damned investors. And there seems to be a lot of uh, interventions to, to affect that, yet prices continue to go up because of migration and people wanting to buy houses. What's your opinion yeah. around that? And yeah. It's fundamentally not true. And I'll explain to you why. You can go and search and you go on Google and you type in um, property research or property growth in a particular suburb. And the vast majority of suburbs in most countries are 70% owner-occupied. That means that there's only 30% of investors in any market. And sure, there are markets that are very investor-focused and we steer away from those because we want to be in markets that are tightly held by owner-occupiers because in tough economic times, the last thing a homeowner is going to sell is their home. They will stop going out for coffees. They won't go out for lunches and dinners. They'll cancel their Netflix subscription and their PT classes. The last thing they will ever do is sell their home. On the flip side, the first thing an investor will sell when times get tough is their investments. So as long as we, we need to recognize that the property market is not the property market. There are markets inside markets inside markets. And sure, if we try and broadly talk about the market overall, then 
there may be generalizations that are true. However, if we understand the macros and we use a top-down approach to be able to select the areas that have the best fundamentals for future growth based on those five key things and that are tightly held by owner-occupiers, we can safely say that in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, 20 years' time, these properties are going to be worth substantially more than what they're worth today. 100%. I couldn't agree more. So what it sounds like, is in in your view, we need to stick to what we're good at and stop Correct. trying to become the property wizard or you know the crypto trader, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when the crypto markets, as an example, were going up, everyone seemed to be a crypto expert. And, uh, oh, yeah. And it was like, no, you just bought a coin and it went up and you had no fucking clue why that happened. Um, and then it went down. You can see the stuff with Luna and UST and stuff crashing at the moment, uh, which is insane to watch. Um, but if I'm, if I'm in my business and I'm good at my business and I'm not wanting to make a career change into property and, and learn those things, we're trying to buy the blue chip stock. If we've got cash, but we don't have enough to purchase a property, what should we be doing? saving yes. it in the bank to accumulate or stick it in some other stuff? Yeah. So what we implement with our clients is what we call a core satellite strategy. So the core of the portfolio is always property. And the reason why we love property is because it's stable if we're buying good quality blue chip property. It's highly leverageable, which maximizes your cash on cash return. So for example, if we only put a 10% deposit into a property, we borrow 90% from the bank, that property goes up by 10%. That is 100% cash on cash return. And typically speaking, when we do buy the right properties, the cash flow covers all of the costs. So they're at least cash flow neutral, if not cash flow positive, which is fantastic. But it's not the be all and end all. Properties are very expensive. Globally, they're one of the highest taxed assets in the world. They are illiquid. It's very hard to get into and out of. There are a lot of steps involved. And we can't just sell the kitchen sink if we need to raise cash flow. So we need to have our satellite strategy, which is usually the share market. However, this is not about stock picking. Because once again, we don't want to be throwing darts at a dartboard or listening to Uncle Bill of what he bought last week at the family barbecue on a Sunday. Um, we don't want to get hot tips because it's speculation. You are not a professional investor. If you're not prepared to understand how to read financial statements, look through annual general meeting reports, and complete your due diligence, you are, you are gambling. You're guessing, and it's speculation. So how I invest is that I invest using index funds. And for those of you who don't understand, an index fund is basically a managed fund that gives you exposure to all of the companies that exist in a particular market. So for example, in Australia, the ASX 300 is the top 300 companies in Australia. There's the NZ. 50 and 100 in New Zealand. We've got the S&P 500. These are all of the companies that exist in that stock market. Now, if we go and buy an index fund in that market, you will have an equal weighting in proportionate of size. So you'd have the biggest slice of the biggest company and a little smidge of the smallest company. And that means you will get the average of however those companies do. Some are going to shoot the lights out. Some are going to do shit. Some are going to do average. But you are guaranteed the average market performance. And what we've found is that over time, the average of that market has been between 8 and 10%. You don't need anything more than that. What's really interesting, James, is that we've seen it through time that 85% of 
active professional fund managers who their full-time job is to outperform the stock market, underperform after fees and taxes, 85%. Unless you're Nancy Pelosi. Exactly. (laughs) Unless you're Nancy Pelosi, she's getting some insider tips, I tell you. Um, But she's a, a very successful seasoned investor with decades of experience and a, a private wealth family office team who does all of the research behind her that she spends millions of dollars a year on. A year on. We don't have those resources as mere mortals. So if 85% of professional fund managers can't outperform the market, what chance have you got? I think that this is, is it's something that more of us need to hear yes. because we get too involved in the emotions of things. And ironically, it doesn't matter what it is. If you let your emotions get too involved, it messes with your judgment, uh, whether it's your your business, your relationships, and especially money because it is so heated. The thing that has helped me the most was to uh, condition, and and I say condition because it is, condition yourself just like going to the gym to switch your mindset about money um, because whenever... Uh, I'm trying to make decisions. If I'm feeling things, it clouds judgment and it increases my perception of risk uh, or decreases my perception of risk. Uh, Either way, it's not helpful to actually assessing what's going on. And you said it right, you know, eight to 10%, you're going to double in seven to 10 years, cash on cash. And it doesn't matter about timing the market either. Everyone times it never gets in. I saw a nice graphic from Tony Robbins about that, like three people, one who got it at the top, one who got it at the bottom and one who got it in the middle. And they ended up basically at the same place. And the only one who didn't was the one who didn't do anything and tried to you know, Correct. rate it out. Um, that being said, uh, at the time of recording this, there is things slipping, there's talks of recessions, um, there's talks of things about to go back up and then back down as you know various things happen with all the stuff going on with inflation and the government's pumping money in and whatnot and people sticking it into, into cryptos and then losing it. What's your opinion right now, uh, which won't be relevant if you listen to this in the future, but in May 2022, what's your opinion around the stock market at the moment and property and things like that? And what would you be doing if you had 50 to 100 grand and you're thinking about just now thinking about getting in and investing and in, in growing yeah. that. Look, it, to be honest, it doesn't matter when you listen to this, my advice and my, my suggestions are going to run true because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We know historically throughout time, three out of every four years is positive returns in growth assets. That means one out of every four years is going to be negative. So you have a 25% chance over a long term in order to have negative returns, which means there's a 75% chance of positive returns. The strategy that I use myself that we advise our clients on when we create a, a, a framework that we call the investment operating system is using what we call dollar cost averaging. To take the emotion out of this, we need to reduce the stakes because we have an emotional energy that is magnified by the amount of money that we've got. The more money you have, the higher the stakes, the higher the emotion, the higher the likelihood of procrastination and sitting on the fence. So let's reduce the stakes. Let's invest each and every single month systematically without fail, whether there's news about China getting locked down or whether there's inflation figures out of the UK of 9% or whether the trade routes are destroyed or whether what's happening in Ukraine, it doesn't matter. We systematically accumulate. 
Because the fundamental principle of this strategy is that we understand what we cannot control and we focus on what we can. You can't change any of these things. All you can dictate is how you choose to react. And the point here being, we're creating what we call money muscle memory. I'll use your gym analogy here, James. We want to get fit. We want to go to the gym. We want to put on some muscle. And we decide to sign up for a membership and we approach the squat rack and we put 300 kilos of weights on the bar when we've never done a squat before in our life. What happens? Get crushed. 100%. Sure, we want, to, we want to shortcut our results. We feel like we're falling behind. We see other people rolling around the gym with their shirt, shirts off and looking great. But that's not the best way to do it. Now, that's how so many entrepreneurs approach their wealth. It's a catch-up game. They put too much weight on the bar, they hurt themselves. So what should we do? We take all the weight off the bar and we just start with the bar. We get the form right. We build up the confidence. We start creating some, some muscle. We get the movements right and then we add weight bit by bit. I'll give you a perfect example of this. One of my most successful clients to date was running a $100 million SaaS business, okay? And he had the lifestyle. He's flying at the pointy end of the plane, renting these beautiful mansions. He had all of the sports cars that you could imagine. He'd basically pissed every single dollar that he'd made up the wall. Zero wealth. And he came to me and when we worked together, we started developing this investment operating system. We created, created his 20-year roadmap. We reverse engineered it backwards. He had more than the financial means to live an amazing lifestyle and build wealth without sacrifice or compromise. And we started his investment portfolio with $500 a month. It's like, for us mere mortals, it's like 50 cents, right? Compared to what this guy was earning. It was crazy. And he said, Jackson, why am I, am I even bothering? I spend more than $500 at brunch on a Saturday. And I said, I know. We're lifting the bar. What happened is when we broke the ice, that's the hardest momentum to create. A week later, he put it to 2000 then to 5000 then to 10000 then to 50000 then to 100000 It was still a real small fraction of his total overall income, but we created momentum. It gave us the ability to start adding the plates, increasing the resistance, and scaling our wealth. Hardest steps the first one. Something to add to that analogy with the gym is as you're adding weights and you're, you're well, first of all, taking all the, 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 the showman plates off, uh, is to not look at anybody else because it's, it's looking at everyone else and seeing what they're doing automatically makes you want to do what they're doing. You don't know why that person is doing it because you don't know what other things, like you see some dude doing some weird exercise and you're like, I guess I need to be doing that. And it's like, or maybe he's rehabbing his hip and you don't have a hip problem. Maybe he's doing yes. that because he's so far down the line that now it becomes relevant because if he doesn't do it, he can't get to his next plateau, you know, uh, a breakthrough. And you're thinking this is what's going to give me the goods. Uh, I think people overthink everything. Uh, you know, if I want to get fit, I have to get the fancy shoes. I've got to get the fancy pants. I've got to get a coach. It's like, nah, you just got to start running, man. Like just go for a walk, you know, build it up. So I really like that uh, with the, with the investing, investing thing. Would you say, Obviously, monthly is something that people can, you know, relate to. Uh, would you encourage uh, people to do weekly or more frequently, less frequently? In general, is monthly just a good thing to be? Yeah, doing? look, monthly is a good a good cadence. If you if you've got an investment account that allows you to invest weekly, great. Um, that's fantastic because it can smooth cash flow. Just kind of take little bits more frequently. That's fine. Um, but at least monthly. 
And what we do is when we set up this system for our clients, we create the investment operating system. It consists of a series of commandments and rules. They're lenses that we pass investment decisions through that become pass or fail. Does this get me closer to my goals or does it not? It then is a, a, an execution plan of how do we automate or if we cannot automate, how do we systemize so we can spend as little time as necessary going through the motion so we reduce the risk of procrastination. And then we have a review and optimization that at the end of every quarter, when we do our profit distribution, we are increasing our allocations, We're adding more weight. And then we rinse and repeat and it compounds over time. With, uh, and, and I want to tr- segue in, into, into talking about uh, uh, tax and paying dumb tax. But before we get there, uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some stuff and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. When we have investments like stock, for example, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, that I know of at least, to be able to leverage against that. And so I'm going to have to sell it to get cash to live my life, I would presume. But with property, you can leverage against it and its debt is not taxable. So as you take the money out as debt, if the asset's still covering itself, it's costing you nothing, but you can then live off the proceeds and not be taxed by it. How does that uh, work when you're talking about income and cash flow and passively especially? Are we looking at uh, selling stock? Is there something that I don't know about here? Uh, And then when it comes to property, do you recommend people to, to take loans against it to live from that, sell them off? Like what's your strategy? Because we need the cash to go and buy the yeah, things. Correct. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to go about this. So wh- where you are in the world will ultimately depend on whether you can borrow against your stock or not and the cost of that. So in Australia and New Zealand, there is a margin lending facility, but the interest rates are astronomical. And they were very competitive prior to the GFC and extremely popular prior to the GFC. But for obvious reasons, when we use leverage, uh, there's a risk of margin call, and many people got damaged substantially as a result of not using those facilities appropriately because they were so used to upwards markets that they overleveraged. And um, so it's not something that we we suggest. And if you do it, it's a very sophisticated strategy. Uh, you're right. The wealthiest people in the world they don't pay tax because they build wealth in assets through capital growth. That is unrealized gains, meaning it doesn't trigger tax. And then they borrow against those assets with very cheap leverage because their loan-to-value ratios are normally quite low, and they live off that. Now, for most of us, we're never going to get to that level. Like For most of our clients, financial freedom requires them to build circa $4 million in net wealth. And the idea is to build that $4 million in net wealth without having the need for debt. So we obviously want to extinguish that debt at some point in the future. So the aim of the game is at that point, we then want to make sure that we've got the right assets that are producing an appropriate level of passive income or are realizable, meaning that we can sell them down in pieces. And we are going to trigger tax implications, but that's just tax as a consequence of making money. And the big thing is I'm not about paying dumb tax, but I'm happy to pay tax as long as the net outcome allows me to achieve my goals. And I think there's so many people out there that are so blindly chasing tax minimization that they do so at the detriment of long-term wealth creation. And it gets in the way. And so my, my personal plan and what I try and teach my clients is your mission is to pay more tax every single year than you paid before. So it means you're making more money. Because you're making more money. Exactly. Yeah. It's something that people do forget is they're not realizing that that extra million dollars, I've got to pay more tax. Yeah, yeah. But you're not paying all of it. 
Um, Correct. <laughs> uh, but there is that that caveat, as you said, which is is, is dumb tax because you don't have your, your your structures and things in place, and you don't realize that you're you're overpaying because you're not getting the right advice. Exactly. Um, when you start generating sort of passive income from your investments and things like that, and you're thinking about starting to travel and do other stuff because there's there's interesting things that you can do with overseas companies and traveling around and uh, tax residency statuses and things like that. Obviously you are traveling within Australia. What's yeah. your advice for someone looking to travel overseas and do it for an extended period of time and well, being able to maintain and grow and, and all that sort of thing? Look, I think the big part here is keeping it simple because, because the backbone and the core of your portfolio is going to be property you need to understand that property is a game of finance and you've got to play by the bank's rules. So if you've just gone and set up all of your, your, your business in the Cayman Islands and you're not paying any tax and you're able to shift all of your money offshore, you're never going to be able to borrow a dollar, which now means that you cannot leverage your dollars, which now means that you have compromised your ability to magnify your cash from cash returns. So let me give you an example, right? Let's say, for example, in Australia, in a corporation, you pay 25% tax. And for the vast majority of our clients who distribute their income, they don't pay any more than 30% tax. So we're losing a third. If we take the remaining two thirds, and then we use that to then leverage that up and then go buy a property that produces, say, a 10% return per year, which is fair and reasonable for all of the clients that we're working with, they've made back their tax in year one, and then everything else is cream on top. So it I found that for many people, unless you are incredibly wealthy, your plan is that your, your wealth creation asset is your business and you want to take that offshore, scale that up and then sell it on, which is incredibly difficult in its own right. And it is likely going to cause more complications, cost you more money and jeopardize financial freedom more than the benefits you get from trying to dodge the tax man. Because as you said, you're, you're, you're needing to have income that can be displayed to the bank for them to allow you to, to continue to, to loan again. So you said something interesting uh, before, which was that to pay off uh, debt. Um, now, my conditioning is that if I've got equity in my property, I should be leveraging it because it's essentially depreciating because of inflation. That, that million dollars 100%. that I have 30 years from now in my, in my property is dead. So, I'd love for you to, to, to chat to me about that from my perspective. What does sure. that mean for you when you say that? And am I looking at it differently? Like we talked about was qualitative and quantitative um, or if I, am I just way off base? Yeah, you're looking at it perfectly, mate. So what we've got to realize is that when we're in a really unique phenomena, which hasn't happened for nearly 40 years, whereby inflation is higher than interest rates, meaning that inflation is paying off your debts for you because Debts are not indexed for inflation. So it's actually not in your interest to pay off your debt from a quantitative standpoint. From a qualitative standpoint, whilst we're accumulating, with you and I, and for the vast majority of people listening or watching this, you're earning active income from your business. So for as long as you can maintain good liquidity and you've got good cash coverage in the event of, say, some sort of event that resulted in your income streams from your properties getting wiped out. So a great example is here in Australia during COVID there was rent moratoriums, meaning that people who were impacted adversely from COVID had rent relief and you couldn't kick them out. So that meant that for so many landlords, they had this fixed expense of servicing their mortgage without the income stream 
to help them with covering that bill. So for us as business owners, we go, oh, that's not nice, but it is what it is because I can spread my risk and produce extra income to cover my cash from elsewhere. But imagine you're retired and you've got no active income anymore. It's a very different proposition. So the qualitative overlay to that is that we will continue to maintain smart leverage to magnify our cash on cash returns until such a time as our risk tolerance no longer supports that. And the idea of the game, typically the crossover point is that when we do start tapering our active income, we want to start paying off our debt. From that point, we obviously want our bad debt paid off, so our home debt fully paid off. And then we choose whether we maintain good debt or investment debt um, based on our risk profile. That makes so much sense, 100%. Um, which leads me into something interesting that I think would be um, great for us to talk about for the audience around taxation and it being an incentive for entrepreneurial types. For example, in New Zealand, there was this large political push that it's unfair that there's landlords and people owning houses and they're able to claim interest against their, you know, their, their rental uh, income. And it's, it's a loophole that investors have been screwing us over for years, right? Now, this was this grand thing that was presented. What wasn't presented was that on the side it's all good to continue to do the same thing if you're buying new builds. Yeah. Why? Because the government wants to show that there are lots of houses being built. So they incentivize the marketplace and force demand onto new builds, which then um, propagates into developers producing more of them. And it creates this side market of all these new builds coming out. But on the face of it, it was the good Samaritan, good politician, we're going to help out these people and the property prices are up because these damn investors are... Uh, loophole claiming things. And I was furious when I found out that I could just go and buy an, a new build. Not only that, they lifted the uh, loan value ratios uh, here that meant that if I was to buy a existing stock, uh, I have to uh, have 40% uh, equity, right? But a new, build, a new build, I could do it with 20, uh, which meant that what was being said and then the reality was just that you had to pay attention to the shifting. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how tax and, and often policies and things like that are, are incentive-based. Why is there less tax for corporations than personal? Because they want enterprise. Um, Correct. your opinions on that? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So the government will always hold the purse strings and they use taxation as a way of incentivizing or pushing people away from using certain strategies, right? And I think overall, globally, Governments will always provide uh, preferential tax treatment for self-employed individuals and business owners because I think it's more than 40% of revenue that's produced by governments in terms of tax collection is by PAY, the POIG system, the jobs that us business owners create and in turn are unpaid tax collectors. Uh, we then use that to fuel the government's initiatives for spending. Um, so I think it's safe that as business owners, our business asset will always be the most tax-effective way for us to build wealth. And like, for example, in Australia, we can build up to a $5 million business asset and sell it with zero tax. There are obviously conditions and things like that, but there's some, that's a very lucrative structure. There's states in the US where there's zero corporations tax. Um, so there's, there's lots of, of great systems in place as business owners. Property is a point of contention, and it will ultimately come down to uh, who is gunning for votes, right, and the general sentiment of individuals. But what's interesting is that you look through all economic times, like, for example, in the US, the government phased out the equivalent of negative gearing, whereby if you had a cash loss on a property, 
you could deduct that loss off your personal income and they phased it out. And then the US property market shifted from being a primarily capital growth play, like very similar to Australia and New Zealand, where the yield is not a big consideration. You just try and get at least cost coverage or negative gearing was very normal. To over the course of the next 10 to 20 years, it shifted. And now property in the US is now primarily a yield play because it went from the government covering that cash flow shortfall to tenants having to pick up that slack. So over the long term, it all works itself out in the wash. It is important as an investor to understand the rules and try and play by the rules. But if you buy good fundamentally sound assets, they will always do well over the long term, irrespective of what the government has tried to do, win votes and, uh, and stuff with the system. You said it, it always plays itself out and balances and the one who always loses is the one who doesn't understand the game. If Correct. you're playing Monopoly and you don't know the rules and you don't know the point of the game, which is to accumulate greens and reds, then you just keep passing go and getting your 200 bucks and wondering why you never have any money and they're going into debt. Because Correct. as you just said, they made this change, which meant that it went from a capital gain to yield, which then meant that tenants had to pay it. And so rents went up, which is crazy because I get a lot of uh, property people on the show and uh, and and I watch a lot of stuff and I'm very interested in it. And, you know, in New Zealand, uh, for example, uh, some of the strategies that they talk about in the States um, just make no sense. Like buying a house that's the 1% rule or whatever, where your, your mortgage, your, your, your rent is 1% per month. I'm like, there's, first of all, I can't even get a house in New Zealand that's lower than that. Secondly, there's no way in hell anybody's going to pay that amount of rent. And it's just, it's, it's bonkers. But as you said that, it makes total sense. Right. And so the, the average person who's got a job, who doesn't understand the rules of the game, is stuck having to pay more and more and more because other changes are being made. I thought it was interesting when you said, you know, 40% of their tax revenue is from PAYE. I mean, 60% of it comes from um, everything else. Yeah. Uh, the way that the system is being geared, it seems that... We want to incentivize industry and, and growth, et cetera, because that's where we get a, a lot of these things. And then we tax, uh, we've got to give people jobs. So we've got to make sure that there are people to give jobs because the government can't give everyone jobs. Um, but then we also have to bear in mind that these businesses will only be able to operate if the cost of labor is not too high. Otherwise, they're just going to invest in the technology, which means that there won't be any jobs. Um, and so there's this constant balancing act um, to keep everything afloat while keeping the working person happy by trickling down, et cetera, et cetera. It's really interesting when you start to realize and zoom out a bit and go, what's, what's going on? It is. And I think this is why we need to be active participants of a capitalist system because whether you like it or not, it works. And what you need to make sure is you don't become the victim who blames the system and makes excuses like, poor me, I'm never going to be able to buy property and poor me, I'm never going to be able to do this or poor me, they've made these changes. It is what it is. Your kicking and screaming is not going to change things. And that doesn't detract from using a platform if you have one to be able to try and make big shifts and changes in government policy that benefits the masses. But the rules are the rules. So just play by them, understand them, and, and be able to achieve your goals within the constraints that may or may not be presented to you. And, and it's those who say, cool, it's changed. I'm going to still accumulate. Um, and I'm going to buy as many good assets as I can because the aim of the game here, particularly when we've got increasing inflation, which to be fair is our biggest risk right now, is that your number one rule is to maintain and preserve or increase your buying power. 
And where most people who don't understand these things become fearful and keep all their money in cash, it is guaranteeing that their money is losing buying power. Whereas if we're buying assets, growth assets, our aim is that we will keep at least keep pace with inflation and over the long term outpace inflation. And this is where this divergence of wealth comes in a capitalist society. Um, you just got to choose what side of the coin you want to be on. Inflation scares the crap out of me. I was like, if I had a million bucks and I held it in the bank for a year and I got 1% or whatever, something stupid, but there was 10% inflation, that cost me 100 grand a year keeping it in the bank. And I was yes. like, I can't keep, I can't do that. Um, I've got to get smarter about money. And I didn't have a million bucks at the time, but like I extrapolated for myself. I was like, what, over 10 years, like it's, it's crazy. Um, do you see governments intervening a lot to to cool inflation because people who are scared of it, which then leads to crashes and recessions? Because that's a risk, isn't it, if the government starts to hike things? and Look, they're trying. They really are. And we're in a – I hate to say this, but we're in a, a very unique time. It's unprecedented. We've never been in such a low interest rate environment with high inflation before. It just hasn't happened. Like the closest comparable was the late 70s and early 80s where we had inflation at kind of 18%, interest rates about the same. But we've got to realize that in the decades following that period of time, property prices tripled. So once again, success leaves clues and we look back to history and history does repeat itself. It has a pattern of doing so. So what we've got to realize is that the government right now, the, the reason why inflation is here is not an excess of demand because ultimately inflation is a, is a, a mechanism of the imbalance of supply and demand. Now, we don't have an excess of demand. We've got a, a scarcity of supply. And we've got to go through a couple of things. We've got geopolitical issues in Eastern Europe between Russia and Ukraine. Um, that's having issues and pressures on utility prices in all of Europe. Um, also, our fuel prices for the rest of the world gone crazy. Um, we've had supply chain issues through all of COVID. Uh, a shipping container that was to get from China to LA prior to COVID was two grand, and now they're charging 20. On average, each day, there are 40 ships waiting to get into ports around the world. There's this huge levels of congestion that it's taken years, it still hasn't fixed. We've got this skilled wage shortage because of low sentiment. People don't want to shift jobs. When you don't have peace of mind and certainty, you stay where you are. And as a result of the rising costs of scarce supply of goods and services, it's creating pricing pressure due to the wages shortage. It's creating wages pressure. And all of this is causing inflation. Also, when we're in recessionary periods, the best way to get out of a recession is for the government to incentivize new building. So once again, another inflationary pressure is the increasing price of new builds of houses. So all of these things has created this perfect storm. So once again, don't be fearful of inflation, understand it and embrace it. And our job is to outpace it. Get cheap debt, have inflation pay it off, buy growth assets that should keep pace or outpace inflation, grow your business, adapt to the times, increase your prices, service your clients, keep your staff happy, maximize your profits, buy more assets, rinse and repeat. I'm excited by this, James. Um, I'm not f afraid of it um, because I understand it. Well, we'll look back and we'll go, that makes sense. And then we'll turn back around and go, oh my God, I'm going to die. And then we'll look back <laughs> and go, oh, that makes sense. And that's just, we're just going to repeat it. So it's like, it's at some point you've got to get a hold of yourself and go, what's missing? Is it a mindset thing? Is it a lack of information? Is it lack of mentorship? Is it the fact that I just keep watching the news and maybe I should turn it off? Um, 
Last uh, question. I ask this uh, of everyone. I'll give you 30 seconds. What's the most important thing that you ever learned? Most important thing that I ever learned is that it's never too late. We're on this vicious cycle of keeping up with the Joneses in this age of social media and all of these people who are pretending to have these amazing lives. And everyone in the world is a duckling. Above the surface, they look gracious and they're floating along the surface. And below, they're kicking their little legs frantically trying to keep up with the current. Everyone is the same. So stop trying to keep up with everyone else and just focus on defining your financial freedom framework, your plan, reverse engineering it and controlling and playing to the things that you can control and taking consistent, regular action without excuses. And if you do that, you're going to be fine. I love it. I love it. Where can our audience connect with you online? Uh, so guys, search for me on Facebook, uh, Jackson Malar, The Wealth Mentor. Um, add me as a friend. I post a whole heap of content, uh, share resources and cool stuff around uh, how you can improve your wealth, your money game. Uh, I've got a really great resource that I'll give away to your guests. It's, uh, if you go to the URL, healthwealthcheck.com.au, healthwealthcheck.com.au, uh, there's a 40-point financial performance scorecard that shows you exactly how you are doing financially. Average score is about 18 out of 40. So most business owners are below average, but don't be scared of that. Now, we'll give you some actionable insights of how you can improve that score uh, very, very quickly. It'll also give you access uh, to my best-selling books and some other cool resources as well. And of course, uh, if you want some help, reach out. Love to have a conversation, see how we can help you uh, level up your money game and achieve financial freedom faster. The thing I'll say to this, I think that everybody needs to consider is that what you don't know is going to cost you a hell of a lot of money. And so you can look at something and think, you know, I'm going to, it's going to, if I didn't go to chiropractic college, I would have saved $100,000, but uh, I would have lost a hell of a lot more in income and opportunities and connections that then took me further. So if you're considering, hey, I maybe need to make my uh, financial situation better, the best and arguably only way of doing that is to have somebody who knows what they're doing lead you there. You didn't go to medical school, chiropractic college, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or should I say you went there because you needed to learn. You didn't go and just read a bunch of textbooks and go, cool, I can do heart surgery. Because even if you did, that's not how you do heart surgery. you got to learn from someone. So often people, you know, whether it's working with, with us and growing your practice, whether it's working with uh, Jackson, for example, and growing your wealth, is you need people leading you who know more than you and you need to pay them to show you how to do it because then you're committed, then you do it. And then you grow because let's say it's arbitrarily 10 grand and you go, oh my God, I can't pay 10 grand. Well, if you don't understand how money works, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more than that in either unrealized income or literal cost because inflation destroys it and you don't know what to do about it. So I strongly recommend everyone goes and checks out Jackson's stuff. It's brilliant. So I've got him on the show. And uh, I appreciate you guys for listening and I appreciate you coming on, on Jackson. This was amazing. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you for checking out this episode. If you liked it, please make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you're a healthcare professional who wants to get serious about business, check out practiceowner.com where we have a whole lot of resources on helping you to grow more impactful and more financially viable practices. So that's practiceowner.com. Go and check that out if you're a health professional serious about business and don't forget to subscribe.